0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that paints audio pictures of people's lives using the songs that have bound themselves to their memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Nairi. Our guest today is Marty Bourgeois. Marty's been a professor of psychology at Florida Gulf Coast University since 2006, and he owns a hip local record store called Beach Records. Before coming to Southwest Florida, he grew up and went to school in Ohio. Besides FGCU, he's taught and done research on social influence and group dynamics at Florida Gulf Coast University, the University of rochester and the university of wyoming he says he's had a lifelong passion some would say obsession he says with music and that he's a big fan of the local original music scene here in southwest florida he has two grown sons who are both musicians and he lives and spends as much time as he can on fort myers beach his name has come up a number of times through guests on this show so now it's finally time to get to his song stories hey there marty Hello. Get up on that mic. All right. How you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for doing this. Right. Um, okay, I, I, I'm going to start a place that usually
0: comes later. When did you get your first album? Uh, first album was probably around the year 1968, I'm guessing. I was 10 years old. Um, I had been buying uh, 45s pretty steadily before then. Any and, idea what that first one was? Well, I think I got like uh, – I think it was – and I had an argument with my mom about this because uh, she was cool with me buying 45s because they were like 77 cents each or so. And then albums were like probably 4 bucks, and she was thinking I probably wouldn't listen to all the songs on the album, so she wanted me to keep buying 45s. I think I won that fight. And I think it was CCR's album, Green River. Nice. Um, uh, Were your parents playing music around the house? Uh, Well, my uh, dad was never really in the picture. He left when I was about two. My mom was not especially musical. Um, We moved in with her parents. So I, I was raised by her and my grandpa and grandma on her side. And none of them were especially musical.
1: Hmm. So the set, the 45s that you were buying, did you have your own little record player then or was they – even though they weren't musical at that time, you still had a record player around the house? Yeah,
0: I'm pretty sure when I was about eight, my uh, grandpa bought us uh, – bought my brother and I a little portable record player and so we started buying 45s then. And so
1: uh, you say they weren't musical, so there wasn't any real music being played around the house necessarily?
0: Was there a radio being played? When, when they were in the car, was there music being played? You know, I mean, I've, you'd think that would be true, but I really don't have any specific memories of the house being especially musical. Hmm. I think my grandpa uh, watched a lot of TV. And I think maybe my, some of my earliest exposure to music was, uh, I guess, one of my, most, uh, er, my earliest specific memory was uh, when the monkeys... Came on. Oh. I, th- I think they came on air in 1966 when I was eight years old. Who was your favorite monkey? Uh, Peter, of course. Of course. Unfortunately, he just died recently. Oh.
1: Hmm. One of my uh, first. Well, actually, I think it was uh, my first actual concert was the Monkeys nice. on their reunion tour. At the Charlotte County
0: Fair. Nice. Uh, I never got to see him live. Herman's Hermits opened for them. Oh yeah, I think I know uh, some. I know some people who saw that tour because I remember they met Peter Noon and uh, also yeah, Matt and Devi. Kirby Puckett and the Union
1: Gap Gary Puckett. Gary Puckett, oh, yeah. Kirby Puckett Kirby. was the baseball player That's for the right. Minnesota Twins. <laughs> Okay. No relation. Uh, No relation. So if you weren't being raised in a musical household, but you were buying 45s, what caused you to diverge into being someone who was into music?
0: Yeah. I I guess I just kind of, once I started buying 45s, I got uh, fairly obsessed with music. I think maybe about a year or two after I started buying them, I I asked my mom if I could uh, take guitar lessons. They were giving them at my grade school. And so I started playing guitar and Um, I I remember vividly that none of the other kids I went to school with had any interest in music. So I would get all excited about these 45s I was buying, started with the Monkees and then moved on to CCR, like I mentioned, the Young Rascals, the Jackson 5. And I remember going to school and trying to – I was very shy, but I remember trying to talk to other kids about music and none of the other kids at school seemed to have any interest in it either. Hmm. And where was this? It was – I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Um, If I say uh, a time when music
1: moved you when you were a kid or when you were younger or caught your attention in a way that stuck with you till today,
0: is there something that leaps to mind? Um, I hate to use the same example I just used, but uh, when the monkey show came out, I kind of got obsessed uh, with music and just started uh, getting as much as I can. I got a small allowance and every every week I'd get my allowance and I'd go to the store and uh, and buy as many records as I could afford. Um, a specific memory, um, I guess there were a few kids in my neighborhood that were uh, Beatles fans, not kids from school, but kids from the neighborhood. And I remember having um, arguments about who was better, the Monkees or the Beatles. And it was it was obvious to me who was better, right, because the Monkees had their own TV show. Yeah. So they must be way better than the Beatles, and I assume the Beatles were just copying off them. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, l- later in life. I you think. were an outlier in that regard, probably. Uh, what was That's it like
1: right. with the monkeys coming on? Was that, So it was a weekly show when it was coming on TV back then? It was
0: a weekly show back in the day. I remember seeing it in the TV Guide, and um, I had no idea what it was. I think the one of the publicity shots had him, like, climbing coconut trees. Right. And I had no idea what it was. And when I tuned in, I'm like, wow, this is cool. This band lives in a house together, and they play music. <laughs> I'm like, this is cool.
1: Was it the music? Was it the antics? Like what percentage of
0: which? Yeah, I guess, it, you know, I'd say maybe 50-50. I mean, those early Monkees records, they got some of the best studio musicians out there. I mean, of course, I didn't realize it at the time. I assumed they were playing their own instruments. But the albums were just, you know, some of the best songwriters in the world. Were Wasn't on those Neil albums. Diamond writing Neil Diamond writing wrote them? I'm a Believer, for example. Which you
1: can hear it.
0: If you know that. Exactly. Know. And then, you know, I heard Neil's versions of some of those songs much later. Yeah, definitely.
1: Huh. Uh, you said you asked if you could take guitar lessons. Did you then proceed? Do you, did you learn to play the guitar? I did.
0: I learned. I never was got really good at it, but got into music from uh, taking lessons at school. I probably stuck it out for a couple of years or so. Uh, do you still play today? Uh, not well. Not well. I still you own still a guitar. You still own a guitar. I do. Yeah. Same guitar? I can, no. Gosh, no. I've had a few along the way. I can uh, play some chords, but no, by no means am I a musician. Um, what was the second album you owned? As a, as a record guy, I got a press you on these. Yeah, things. no, the, these are good questions. Um, my grandfather actually, when he um, when he got us our second turntable or record player, I guess at the time it was just a little portable one. He went out and got. Um, a couple albums. I remember he got a jazz album by a guy named J.J. Johnson. He was a trombone player, hmm. and one that really sticks in my head, which I, um, an artist I love to this day, was a blues album by Lightning Hopkins. Hmm. And it, you know, years later, it just kind of blew me away because, like I said, I never considered my grandpa to be a especially musical guy, and Lightning Hopkins was just this amazing old Texas blues musician. I have no idea why he bought that record. Maybe I, he was like a closet music. I guy, think he might have been. You know? you know, maybe he just hid that from me. Hmm. Um, it is
1: time for your first song. All right. Um, yeah, we're going with Bob Dylan first. Okay. If, is that
0: what you would prefer? Yeah. Yeah. We can no, do no that's fine. Order. Hey, Bob's.
1: So, Bob's always fine. So uh, how do you want to handle the setup versus the listening, et cetera?
0: Um, I guess Uh-oh. this one maybe I'll, I'll talk about a little bit up sure, front. yeah. As much so, as you want. So I've been a Bob fan for <clears throat> just about all my life. Um, I guess anybody who, ever, who eventually listens to this show would uh, – not Believe It Was Me, if I didn't pick out a Bob song, I've um, probably seen him live about 40 times. 40 times? Yeah, at least. I was trying to count it up. Bob's one of those musicians, especially back in the 80s and 90s when he was, um, tour- well, he's still touring steadily to this day in his late 70s, but... Um, He was one of those musicians that would, um, much like the Grateful Dead, like do a different set list every night. Mm -hmm. And so especially, you know, um, if I had a week off or so, I could go see three, four Bob shows on the same tour and see three or four completely different shows. Yeah,
1: see a bunch of different songs. So
0: I've always been obsessed with Bob. So it was impossible to think of one Bob song to pick. And I was, you know, trying to find one that was especially meaningful for any reason. Could have picked hundreds, I suppose. And I guess I pick forever young because it reminds me of um, a time when I was asked to give the commencement speech at the University of Wyoming to the psychology majors um, we were so large, we had our own graduation in the psychology department. Interesting. And so I um, started scouring the web for uh, commencement speeches because I'd never given one before. And they all just sounded— You needed something to copy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They all just sounded kind of like platitudes. And then for some reason, uh, Bob's song, Forever Young, came to mind. And that was a song he wrote for his son Jacob when he was a baby. Uh-huh. And it just seemed to fit the theme of graduation, you know, not forever young in the literal sense, but may you stay forever young. May you, you know, not ever completely grow up and and just keep going. So I just kind of recited the lyrics to that song and just kind of went from there on my speech. How was it received? Um, well, um, graduation's an interesting time in academia, right? Everybody's in a great mood. Obviously, the students and the parents are in a great mood because they... This is is it, yeah. (laughs) That's right. Uh, The faculty are in a great mood because that means they have at least a couple weeks or maybe a month or so they don't have to do any grading for a while. So everybody's in a great mood. So I heard a lot of good things about it, but I, I didn't believe them. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, shall we listen to it? Sure. Okay, now this is, the, this is the slow one. That's right. So on the Planet Waves album, there's actually two versions. On side one is the acoustic, and then you, at the end of side one, you flip it and you hear the electric side. But the acoustic is definitely the vibe I'd, I was going for. It. All right, this
1: is Forever Young by Bob Dylan, uh, like he said, uh, from Dylan's 1974 album, Planet Waves. So how long ago was that uh, commencement?
0: Oh, uh, gosh. That's a good question. I was in Wyoming between 1998 and 2006 when I came here. So probably early 2000s, I'm guessing.
1: Hmm. What Did that remind you of then? Did that remind you of Bob Dylan? Did that remind you of one of the other times you've seen him play that song? Because surely you've seen him play that song. You know, he
0: doesn't do that one uh, oh, really? uh, live all that often. I think I have seen it once or twice. You know, some songs he does a lot more often than others, and he's always changing it up. But just kind of listening to that song... Um, for one thing it reminded me how long that song is <laughs> Man, and it made me realize if I picked out longer songs I, I could talk less and I should I guess <laughs> I, not how it works. I'm rethinking that now
1: <laughs> that's not how it works oh god um uh, uh, that song or that song is twice on that album one is the acoustic version one is the electric version I know he kind of got some guff when he started playing electric where were you in that arc and how did you feel about it etc
0: you know at the time I wasn't really a bob fan I didn't really you follow Bob closely until I guess the first album I remember um, vividly was uh, Blood on the Tracks, which oh. came out uh, right after Planet Waves, so mid-70s. And so Bob went through all that stuff about 10 years before then. Gotcha. Yeah. So
1: that was not even on your radar. No, that was just gotcha. history by the time That's you right. found him.
0: That's right. But what the cool thing about that Planet Waves album is that he was reunited with the band, who was his backing band for that tour when he, you know, toured – the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, consistently got booed off the stage, or not booed off the stage, but got booed every night. They, right? They never actually left the stage. Just played to the boos. That's right. Um, uh, there was a
1: version of that with the band, right? That's oh, not. Yeah. That's not the Planet Waves version, though. That's a different. Yeah. No, version. the band
0: actually is the backing band oh, on so that what we record. So we were just listening. Yeah, there. yeah. Oh, There's okay. a live version with the band too. Oh, that's what I, yeah, that's when I was saying. digging around. Yeah, that's on. Uh, um, Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on the name. The live album that they did together, it's called Before the Flood. Uh, What is it about Dylan that got you? You know, that's a good question. It's, um, I guess, a combination of the, obviously, the words, you know. I mean, he's, right, he's uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature now, and so— I guess finally you were
1: on to something. Decidedly so. <laughs> yeah,
0: so de- you know, definitely started with the words. Um, interestingly enough, I don't really listen to lyrics much when I listen to music, but there's something about Bob that's different about that. Uh, yeah, I can. And, uh, and maybe just the constant. You know, you mentioned the change he went through. He's he's gone through weird changes throughout his entire career, and. Um, you know it's easier to stick with him on some of those changes than others when he started doing uh, Frank Sinatra covers. I was going to uh, ask pretty regularly over the last couple of years like I think when I saw him at Barber what, about 3 years ago maybe um about a third of the show were Frank Sinatra covers, right? And he was putting out Sinatra uh, albums, you know, entire albums of Frank covers or old standards covers and why is the world's greatest songwriter doing cover albums? He was,
1: he, he wanted some more
0: booing. That's right. <laughs> he that's missed right. the booing. Right, so going electric and becoming Christian <laughs> and, and all the things he did uh, wasn't enough, I guess that's a good point.
1: Hmm. Uh, you had that guitar. Did you ever learn any Dylan songs? Seems well, like there's a couple on Blood on the Tracks
0: that might have been within striking distance. And that's the good thing about Bob Dylan <clears throat> is you can, you know, even if you can play four or five chords like I can, you know, you can uh, find a tab online and... Uh, at least drum along.
1: Yeah. 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 And that Blood on the Tracks album pretty much is Bob Dylan to me. You know, and I, I know quite a few of his songs, but that's the one that's on my phone that I've listened to 300 times in my life, just because it's just perfect, I think.
0: No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I can't pick out a, a favorite Bob Dylan album. I've probably been asked that question hundreds of times over my life, and I can't. But if I had to on any given day, I'd I'll pull that one out as much as, as often as any.
1: Uh, um uh how many vinyl how many
0: pieces of physical Bob Dylan music do you own? um well, interestingly enough, I don't have a personal record collection, really yeah, so um when that's like a fish tank store owner not having an aquarium that's right, so people <laughs> uh, just assume that record store owners do have amazing collections, and I think most of them do. I know the um other owners in town that I'm friends with they all have nice you know amazing collections they kind of. Grab the best stuff for themselves, but whenever anybody asked me about my personal collection when I'm in the store, I just said, "Look around, this is it." So I just consider it to be kind of a rotating collection.
1: That's like your den, like That's your right. music den in right. your store. So then, how do you listen to music?
0: Well, um, when you're not at the store. Yeah, I have a turntable at home, so I'll you know put on record or two. take a few home from the shop. or Yeah, something. absolutely. So we're open Thursday to Sunday, so I'll usually take a stack home Sunday night and listen to them through the week. And it's always, uh, yeah, definitely always changing. I think right now I probably have maybe seven or eight Bob records in the store.
1: Hm. Are they sought after?
0: Yeah, Bob's probably one of the best-selling artists because his records are um, affordable, you know, and, you know, when you buy big collections of people from back in the day, everybody had Bob Dylan records, at least a few. And so... um you know, even when the teenage kids come in, you know, some of our best customers are like teenagers, early 20s, and everybody will buy Bob albums.
1: Do you know off the top of your head which is would be like a – a White Whale Bob Dylan album, something that, you know, is worth more than the rest for whatever reason?
0: Well, it would have to be one of the bootleg albums. I think actually one of them that was the, re, you know, the recording of uh, one of the early electric concerts uh, was called The Great White Wonder. Well, that was a combination of basement tapes and some live stuff. And um, that was actually the, f- uh, I guess people say it was the first bootleg album. Hmm. And so, yeah, that one's hard to find. What's it worth? Uh, you know, Less than 100, I'd say. Okay.
1: Yeah. What was the smallest – we're about done with Bob Dylan. What was uh-huh. the smallest venue – What? That you <laughs> – you're like, let's keep doing this. Uh, what was the smallest venue you can recall seeing him in, and what was the largest venue you can recall seeing him in?
0: Man, that's going to take some time. You know, Barbara B's probably one of the smaller venues. What uh, That holds, what, maybe 3,000 people? It's a relatively yeah, small venue. Yeah, probably not venue. even that. Yeah. And I've seen um, uh, um stadiums i've seen him uh, at the aspen jazz fest when i was living out west and that was a big outdoor venue so i've probably seen bob anywhere from you know maybe three thousand to uh, twenty thousand gotcha yeah and i mean the cool thing about it is at this stage in his career you can see him in like you know three four or five thousand seat venues right you know i mean if i was a stones fan you know i'd have to see him in a football stadium right, right?
1: Not, in sen- not the same thing, but sort of the same thing. This coming Thursday, I'm seeing for the first time in my life, Willie Nelson. Nice. He's coming to town.
0: Yeah, is he going to be at Hertz? Yeah,
1: he's at Hertz Thursday night. I I bought tickets the day they came on. I was like, this is it. Like, yeah. I-, I keep putting it off. I feel like I ought not put it off any longer.
0: I've never seen Willie, and he's one of those people I should see.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, most recent concert?
0: Oh, gosh. Like. Concert concert because I go to you know live local shows all the time it yeah, yeah, been... not, not like not local gig, yeah like yeah. you know okay, so I guess last week I drove up to tampa there was um there was a punk band that used to play in my I had a record store in Laramie, Wyoming before I moved here, and these uh eighteen nineteen year old kids started coming in the store and they uh they were actually taking a class from my wife, she taught writing classes, and they started coming in the store and um they were in a local punk band, and they were... I wouldn't say they were cocky, but they knew they were good. And um, 20 years later, they're, um, they go by the name Teenage Bottle Rocket, and mm-hmm. among the punk crowd, they're a pretty big band, so I got a chance to see them up in Tampa last week. Cool. At the Brass Mug. What was your record store in Wyoming called? It was called Highlands Records uh, after a Bob Dylan song. Beach Highlands. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I was (laughs) in the mountains then. I was going to guess mountains record, but I didn't know.
1: Um, uh, uh, Band or musician that you'd really like to see now, I guess maybe you say Willie Nelson, but is there anybody else that's out there that you feel like you should, you know, make it happen? I
0: guess I feel like just for, um, I guess I should see the Stones just for general principle, you know, that, I mean, you could have said this 30 years ago, it might be their last tour, right? Or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but... Yeah, I feel like maybe I should see the Stones. They're playing in Tampa, I guess, on this tour. Mm.
1: I have no desire. They're one of those ones that I just like—it's like it's like, uh, it's like Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. I
0: missed it. Uh-huh. I don't want to catch up.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm just no. going to let it keep going down the tracks. I can relate. Um, uh, I normally ask, when was the last time you bought music that had a physical form? Uh-huh. You're an outlier. That would have been yesterday. No, yeah, so
0: uh, when was the last time you bought music that had a digital form, Marty? Ooh. You know what? Um, I— I downloaded uh album once in my life. It was um, a, a band called Graham Parker and the Rumor. I okay. was a, I was a big fan. Uh, Graham came out mid-70s, like through late 70s. They were kind of a, I guess you'd call them, not exactly punky, but influenced by punks. And um, like Elvis Costello came out right after Graham, and I think Elvis took a lot of Graham's, uh, he was influenced a lot by Graham, let's put it that way. So anyway, Graham Parker and the Rumor were a great band from the mid 70s through like 1980 they broke up and then i think over 30 years later they uh, reformed and when i found out they put a new album out i couldn't wait to get it so i downloaded it
1: could you have gotten the cd was I, it still i could have gotten the
0: cd but i wanted to hear it that day <clears throat>
1: What do you think about this resurgence of vinyl that the young hip bands are putting out now? You
0: know, I keep hearing the vinyls coming back, and I've been hearing that ever since I've owned record stores. And I'd I'd love if the resurgence was as big as... As it sounds like it is? I mean, relatively speaking, it is.
1: Well, there's a statistic that makes it sound really impressive, but if you really think hard about it, it's not necessarily, and that is, I guess last year was the first year that vinyl outsold CDs, Mm -hmm. which is like, wow, Mm -hmm. but that may just
0: mean that nobody's buying CDs. It's it's a combination (laughs) of both. Vinyl, I think 1989 was a magic year where CDs completely replaced vinyl almost overnight. Like if you walked in a record store in 1989, you'd see thousands of vinyl records. If you walked in 1990, you'd see a handful of them and thousands of CDs. It was amazing how fast that happened. And then, you know, for what, over 10 years, there was absolutely no vinyl. And so maybe, you know, early 2000s, maybe they started coming back. And every year since then, vinyl sold a little bit more, a little bit more, and CDs are selling less and less. And the statistic about vinyls outselling CDs is dollar-wise. Oh, that's not units. Yeah, when you look at units, it's kind of misleading because vinyl, you know, brand new vinyl is ridiculously overpriced. So you know if you're paying 30 35 bucks for a brand new vinyl then it it's not surprising. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Did you uh, do you know Kate Scales? Oh, of course, I love Kate. You know, she's in New York right now doing this I just saw that. doing I'm this, Facebook this straight to they've got like an old machine that you can feed music into and it will create a disc and she is recording people have made requests to record individual I guess 45s mm-hmm. probably. That are the exact, it's like not mixed, it's not produced, it is just boom, zoom, zoom. I love that.
0: I actually should have hit Kate up to record a song for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. Jack White. Um, has one of those old, there were these booths in the 1940s where you could go to county fair right, right, and just go in and record an album. And Jack White actually has one of the few remaining ones out there, Jack White from the White Stripes. One of the booths? Yeah, he's got one of the booths. And um, on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show a few years back, Neil Young actually uh, went in the booth and recorded a song like in real time on Jimmy's show. It was really
1: cool. Wow, that's really cool. I'll have to try to find that on YouTube. Um, Okay, song number two. All right. Hey there, listeners. Uh, we don't normally do this, but uh, it's definitely warranted here. Uh, the song coming up is extremely explicit, uh, and even though we bleeped uh, the words themselves, uh, the content is uh, very descriptive, let's say. So if that's something that matters to you, uh, skip ahead about two minutes. You have been warned. I've never heard of this one. All right. What is it? What is it? Oh, it's Shave them Dry. Are you allowed to play that on the radio? This isn't the radio. All right. And I haven't oh, listened to point. it. good point. Good so point. Th- and I haven't listened to it, so yeah. I don't even know why you're asking me that question. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's let's play this one first. Okay. This is Shave Them Dry, performed by Lucille Bogan. hmm That's uh, right. Recorded in 1924.
2: All right. I got nipples on my titties, big as the end of my thumb. I got something between my legs, that'll make a dead man cough. Oh, daddy. Oh, daddy. I <laughs>
0: I can't wait to see what Richard does with the edit on that one.
1: It's going to be a lot of work.
0: Okay. There is a cleaner version of it, nope. and i got to say I'm thankful you found this one. Yeah. You know,
1: I don't listen to them. And in this case, this is not one that you can find somewhere like Spotify or something. Mm-hmm. So I just went to YouTube, I downloaded like six different versions, and I picked it based on the audio quality. Uh-huh. So I could tell by listening to the first five seconds that that was the best one. Uh-huh. But I did not listen to it oh, until good. just then. That would be like – that would be pretty racy – Tomorrow. That, if, if, <laughs> Let alone if, in 1924. Yeah, if, I mean, if Tipper Gore had been alive back then, then we would have had the parental advisory stickers from the 20s. Yeah, it's
0: like two live crew yeah. in 1924. So what's going on oh, there? Yeah. Well, gosh. I mean, it's hard to to tell this story, a uh, short version of this story. Mm, yeah, let's go with it. I'll just start. So in the <laughs> early 90s, maybe my uh, wife Anna was working on her master's degree, and she was getting a master's in English Lit, and she wanted to do her thesis on women's blues lyrics. And um, her advisor at the time, uh, well, I guess I should say that when she uh, started looking for women's blues lyrics, she couldn't find any. She found tons of anthologies of men's blues lyrics, you know. And, you know, maybe there'd be a couple women's songs in them, but there were no anthologies of them. And, but so she wanted to do her thesis on that. And so her advisor said, well, that can be your thesis. You can do an anthology uh, yeah, yeah. of women's blues. And so um, we kind of systematically—now remember, there's uh, you can download stuff then, of course. So we uh, had to uh, find every record and CD we could find with women's blues in it. Uh, fortunately, there's a library just south of Toledo Bowling Green State University. They have an m- amazing archive in their pop culture department of vinyl. So we would like literally spend hours and hours at a time. Um, we'd have parties where everybody would come over and we'd play records, CDs, or we'd go down to BG uh, trying to decipher the lyrics. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of that stuff from the 20s, um, the recording is pretty poor. So we'd have to listen to something over and over and over again to get the lyrics down. And so. Um, this brings back a really specific memory of listening to this. And what was she saying there? What was she saying there? And we'd kind of vote on it. So anyway, my wife ended up uh, getting a book out of it. or Her master's thesis was published into a book called Blues Women by Anna Stong Bourgeois. And, um, you know, that's my shameless plug, I guess, for Anna's book. <laughs> and it brings back great memories of Anna. She unfortunately died before I moved to Wyoming. But... um, the cool thing about this song is about a week ago. I live in a duplex on the beach. I live in an upstairs apartment. Um, my downstairs neighbor um, is a young woman in her late 20s, and we're good friends. She has a six year old daughter, and she's a good customer at the store, too. And she just bought an album uh, last week, I think, called Copulate and Blues. The this song was actually on. Oh, really? And so um, she, she's also a server and gets home late from work. And so um, just about a week ago at 3.30 a.m., through my floorboards, I heard Lucille Bogan singing uh, Shave and Dry. Same version? Same version, yeah. Oh, man.
1: Um, I, in her research, did she learn, I mean, how much of an outlier was that for that time? Because it seems like that must have just been an incredible outlier, like something that wouldn't have been released... To the broader public, and even. That's, that's
0: certainly true. And, and the, I, matter of fact, I think this version was originally not released, and that's why she did a cleaner version. Um, at the time, as you can imagine, male and female blues singers, um, you know, they would sing in metaphors. Right. Yeah. So you know, there's tons of blues metaphors that kind of stand in for it. So th- that's what I love about this song is there's no subtlety. There's no.
1: It. Yeah. It is. It is what it is. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Um,
0: when did you open Beach Records? Uh, gosh. Um, let's see. I moved here in 2006, and I'd say probably about six or seven years ago, I started selling records down in the flea market in Bonita Springs, Flamingo okay. Island flea market. I was buying and selling online since I moved here, and it was outgrowing my house, and that's kind of what happened to me back in Wyoming when I opened the store there too. So I was running out of room, so I opened up a space in the flea market, and I thought it was a cool opportunity for my kids to to help me out and make some money, and it would be their first job too, and they did, and so that was a great family thing. So about six, seven years ago, we opened up down there. I think we originally had a hundred square feet. And then I got 200 square feet and then 400 and 800, and I just kept out growing it. And then I think just about five years ago, um, I opened up the original location of the, the storefront. So, yeah, it was probably about five years ago, and then we moved into the place we're at now, I think, in March. Hmm. You have bands there. Yeah, we we have bands. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to open up a record store um to kind of give bands an opportunity. I was, you know, becoming more familiar with the local music scene, and at the time, f- 4 or 5 years ago, there were very few venues for live, you know, for bands to play original music. You know, you can walk up and down the beach and listen to You know, 12 versions of Brown Eyed Girl, you know, (laughs) within a half a mile. Yeah. But not too many venues for local original music. So we started doing that. And what was really cool is at the same time, a lot of people had the same idea I had. So now there's tons and tons of venues around town for uh, all these original live bands. Um, The old record store was much larger. We were over on San Carlos, like right around the corner from where we are now. And we had an actual stage. The space I rented was um, a church and a strip mall. And so we used the altar for a stage, and we had the pulpit for the DJ booth, and it was pretty cool. Yeah. And it felt like a venue. Like we had, you know, uh, my, book, my a friend of mine uh, put up professional lighting and stuff, and it felt like a real venue. Um, we downsized with this move, and um, so we don't even have a stage anymore. We just kind of move stuff out of the way. So when bands play there now— it feels more like you're just playing in a record store. And I, I have to say I really prefer that. There's there's plenty of really great venues out there. yeah. And so that's what I tell people. We're not really a venue. We're just, you know, if you want to play in a record store um, – That were your place. Uh, You
1: mentioned, you know, you like the Southwest, Florida local music scene. You've been here since 2006. Uh, You know, it's really kind of turbocharging here in the past few years, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's definitely true. Um, Largely thanks to, I think, a lot of the venues that have been coming out over the last uh, four or five years. Who are some of the bands that play at Beach Records? Oh, man. It, you know, do I have Sorry, to? Sorry, never mind, never mind. I'll, I'll mention some of my favorites. <laughs> so, some of my favorites, uh, the Free Coasters, local reggae band, oh, that's, been around forever. That's Claire, 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 and John. They, um, they rehearse in the store, they were just playing in the store last night. Um, I have good friends in a kind of a pop punk band called the Camaros, they're a three piece, and they used to play in the store. They have their own studio now. Um, gosh. There's so many. Rocks Revolt is a great local band. Mm-hmm. The Heart Attack Guns. You know, I could I could spit Rox out. Rocks is on our calendar. Yeah. Oh, good. Somewhere in the future. Yeah, you definitely need to talk to Rocks. Uh, Frankie's band, Cobras, Frankie Colt's band, Frankie Orion's band. Yeah. So there's a ton of them, and I feel really bad because I'm leaving out probably fifteen or twenty or eighty that yeah. I should mention. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Um,
1: so, did you come here for the FGCU job?
0: You know, my wife died in uh, 2004. We were living in Laramie, Wyoming. My kids were seven and nine. Laramie's a, a great town, but it's a very small town. And so when your wife dies and you have two young kids and you're thousands of miles from home, I'm like, I need to start over. You know, every place you go in a small town reminds you. My wife died very suddenly. And so my goal was to go on the job market the year after I applied here. You know, I was going to take my time and kind of scope out different schools and stuff. Um, but then I think it was March or April, maybe a little bit later than now in the academic year in uh, 2005, I guess that would be. And I saw a job ad for FGCU. Um, so you came physically to so f- to this area. what I knew about the school, I did a postdoc at Florida Atlantic University in the mid-90s. And I remember reading when I was in Florida that they were going to put a university somewhere between Naples and Fort Myers. And I'm like, why would you put a university between Naples and Fort Myers? There's absolutely nothing there.
1: So stuff would be there. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) And then, you know, years and years later, I saw a job ad. Florida was one of the places I was thinking about coming because it's easier, much easier for my family to, to come here than it was Wyoming. And so I figured to be closer to family and stuff like that. So um, I wasn't really seriously looking for a job at the time, but all they asked for was a a CV and a cover letter and a statement. And so I just kind of whipped one out and whipped one off and sent it to them. About a month later, they asked me if I wanted to come down for an interview. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did apply there, didn't I? Yeah, so... I'm here. What was it about here that made you decide to come here? Was well, there something that stuck with you or that you liked? I think um, doing my postdoc, so Florida Atlantic's in Boca Raton, and we lived in Deerfield Beach. We lived a block from the beach. It was kind of a really great time in our lives. Like my wife just got her master's. I just got my PhD. We got married. We moved 1,200 miles, I guess, and it was our first real jobs, you know, real academic jobs. Like I said, she was teaching literature and soon found out she was pregnant with our first son. And it was just a great time of life. And we just absolutely love Florida. Um, postdocs are temporary jobs. And I knew that at the time. And so from Florida, we went to Rochester, New York and Laramie, Wyoming. And I, at some point, I realized that growing up in Ohio and spending all that time up north that I'm really not a big fan of snow and cold weather. Yeah. So I finally came to my senses.
1: Hmm. Did you move to r- immediately to the beach? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. That was my philosophy. You know, a lot of my colleagues kind of tried to talk me out of it. They, you know, they said you should live in Estero or, you know, gate. I don't think it was called Gateway at the time, but you know, that neighborhood up there, someplace close. And my philosophy was, I'm coming to Florida because of the water. Yeah. Right. I mean, that. I mean, it's a great university. Don't get me wrong. Great job, great colleagues, and everything. But, you know, the weather and the water are what brought me here. So it's kind of a trade off. You know, I'll do my thirty. 35 or maybe in season 55 65 minute drive yeah. to and from work and it's a trade off to you know spend every morning literally on the beach. Uh which way do you go? Um well <laughs> well, well I used to live at the south locals end. Will of, understand. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. I used to live at the south end of the beach like down by the movie theater so I would kind of go south through Benita. You can't get there directly, right? So now I live up north. I live closer to the um Times Square and the bridge and everything, so now I go north. Gotcha. Yeah. The uh, good thing about it is, you, you know, even when the traffic backs way up, it, you know, somebody will always let you out. So. Yeah, yeah, And I, I kind of drive against the traffic because I'm leaving the beach in the morning right. and I'm coming back at night. Hmm.
1: Um, how much has the curriculum changed for incoming psychology students since you were an incoming psychology student till today? And that's probably like an hours long conversation yeah. potentially. But I just, I'm wondering for somebody who is teaching it now still, uh-huh. but had to start that training somewhere,
0: yeah, flesh that out a little bit. That's a good question. I think the old school approach, which actually we were doing here when I got here was, um, if you're going to major in psychology, you need to take a ton of required courses. You have to take you know cognitive and neuroscience and developmental and social. You have to take these very specific courses, a lot of statistics and research methods. And um, I think the curriculums, there's a lot more choice involved, let's put it that way. So there's fewer required classes and, and you have more choice to kind of specialize in different areas now. You know, back in the day, we just, you know, you just assume that a major like that is going to give you a broad, you know, liberal arts background Um, So you're a generalist, and now I think you can kind of specialize more, even at the undergrad level now.
1: Hmm. Uh, Does music ever fit into your teaching at all?
0: You know, you'd think it would, wouldn't you? Like a lot of my colleagues use music very effectively, and I I have to say, um, other than, uh, you know, Bob Dylan references I drop into lectures, I'd say no.
1: Okay. Uh, Your research was on social influence and group dynamics. Is there any any, uh, overlap between that and... Music and crowds and all that stuff.
0: I I was trying to think of of some way to bridge the two. Um, I guess, you know, I guess you could argue that a record store is a great little um, microcosm of uh, culture, right? And so record stores have a very specific culture. There's certainly a lot of social influence and group dynamics going on in there. Um, I get to hear way more than I want to hear about all the gossip of local bands, drummers quitting and leaving and and coming. um, So I guess I never, you know, I almost feel like uh, multiple personality, like I have my identity as an academic and my identity as a record store owner. And a lot of people who know me in either um, domain are surprised when they find out that I have this whole other life. Uh Um, But... So I guess maybe even like thinking about doing this show kind of made me think about that. And I, so yeah, I guess I should probably read some of the papers I've written on group <laughs> dynamics, and you know, if nothing else, maybe figure out how to how to market my store.
1: Um, uh, before we get to your third song, um, do you do
0: social media? I um, I do Facebook for the store. I'm We're just gonna, wondering uh, your
1: thoughts on you know group dynamic and influencing. Yeah. You know, things have gone. Speaking of turbocharged, yeah, you know, we've, we've, we're in this whole weird new world that seems like it's been here
0: forever, but it really hadn't been here for about, about ten years. It is totally weird, and it's just it's technology, right? So people argue that oh, Facebook is resp- and Twitter are responsible for you know polarizing society and stuff like that, and you know people have probably ma- been making that arguments going back to Gutenberg, right? right. The printing press, yeah, and, yeah. And so it's almost like every new wave of technology that makes it easier to communicate is kind of you know, instead of bringing us together is pulling us apart. And, it, yeah, I mean, it, it seems a little bit scary.
1: Hmm. Okay, song three. All right. This is uh, To Live is to Fly. Okay. Uh, so what's, what's the story? And this is, the, I did get the live version that you asked
0: for. Oh, cool. Yeah, so um, To Live is to Fly was written by Towns Van Zant, a great songwriter. If you don't know Towns, you should definitely check him out. Uh, Steve Earle, another songwriter, once said, while he was opening on a tour for Bob, he said, Towns Van Zandt is the world's greatest songwriter, and I'll stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table with my cowboy boots on and say that. Uh-huh. And Bob was cool with it. Bob has actually covered some Town songs. Um, and the Cowboy Junkies are just a cool band that came out in the 80s. Um, they were two of my wife's favorite bands, and I chose this song because uh, when I was asking my kids what were some of their earliest musical memories, and um, they were and there were memories of their mom playing a lot of town songs to them and playing a lot of Cowboy Junkie songs to them. And so this is, um, I guess, a song that kind of helps me think about how Anna really helped me instill, like, this love of music in my kids at a very young age, Hmm. probably without even trying. It's not like we consciously said, okay, you're going to be into music. They were just immersed in it, right? Hmm. When was the last time you listened to it? To live is to fly. The live version that we're about to listen. To. Um, probably when you asked me to come up with the the songs for the show, which would have been a couple months back, it had it had been a while. Yeah, I listened to Towns a lot, but this particular version, it's been quite a while.
1: Okay, well let's listen to it. All this right. is uh, "To Live Is to Fly," like you said, written by Towns Van Zant, performed live here by the Cowboy Junkies from their tribute to him.
0: And So what's that make you feel? That makes me remember all the times that I, that my wife would like sing this song and other songs at the top of her lungs, always, constantly. Is she a good singer? Well, uh, her mom's probably going to listen to this, so I'm going to say yeah. She's, <laughs> she, she was definitely a unique singer. Um, uh, You said your sons play music. Yeah, they're not professional musicians, but they both uh, – Zeke, he's 24. He's a really good guitar player. He was in a um, hardcore band uh, back here uh, maybe about eight, ten years ago when he was uh, – well, maybe eight years ago called Green Street Elite. Some people might remember them. Uh, Adrian, he's 22. And he Zeke plays guitar. Adrian plays uh, synthesizer. He built his own synthesizer when I think he was uh, 16, maybe. Huh. Yeah. Is so um, he, so he an electrical engineer now or yeah, something? Yeah, <laughs> well, I, yeah, he's not a professional one. But so Zeke's in Atlanta now, and uh, Adrian's in Tallahassee, and they're both, uh, every time I visit them, and, yeah, they're just still keeping up with music. Hmm. Um, uh, do you have a fourth song that almost made it to the list? Gosh. Uh, You know, I really don't. Nothing that that pops in my head. It was, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard this. This is what the hundred, you've had a hundred episodes. So I'm sure a hundred times you've heard it's almost impossible to come up with three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was, but not because uh, dozens of things were coming to mind. It was like, almost like, it's hard coming up with three.
1: Um, Did you have some sort of process that helped you whittle it down?
0: Not really. I I think I took what you said to heart and tried to pick stuff that reminded you of specific times in your life that you'd want to talk about. Huh. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, besides Bob, who's obviously a god. But, I mean, the other two aren't, you know, by no means are they my favorite artists or anything.
1: Right. Yeah. Huh. Um, If you were a championship wrestler, what song would you come out to? Oh, man. (laughs) This is one
0: of our new questions. Yeah. You probably haven't heard that one. I have not heard that one. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an appropriate Bob song. Mm. Um, uh, man, nothing oh. comes to mind. It's embarrassing. What's the one from Blood on the Tracks? It's a wonder you even know how to breathe. Yeah, Idiot Wind. <laughs> okay, Idiot Wind. Okay. I'll steal that from you, Mike.
1: Okay, okay. Um, uh, uh, Broadway musicals? Uh, never any, a big any love fan. For
0: my mom took us to New York City when I was 10, and we saw Hello, Dolly, and we saw Mame. Never a big fan of musicals. Okay. Uh, karaoke? Uh, never did it in my life. I love watching karaoke, especially bad karaoke. Okay. Of course. Um yeah, so the movie Lost in Translation, one of my oh, favorite yeah, movies. Oh, yeah, I love Like, that the movie. karaoke scenes in that movie are fantastic. I love
1: the instrumental soundtrack of that movie. Oh, yeah. Like, yep. I can hear
0: it in my head right yep. now. Yeah, um, uh, What about dancing? Dan- no, uh, much to my wife's uh, chagrin, I never—at my wedding. Okay, so yeah. at my wedding, we danced to—and uh, you said we couldn't pick wedding dance yeah. songs, but we danced to Van Morrison Crazy Love. Oh. Hmm. Uh probably the last time I danced. Probably last time you danced. I'm about the same way. Close to the first.
1: Um if you could learn an instrument instantly without having to try,
0: which would you choose? I guess I'd go with guitar just because it's the one I've I've fiddled around with a little bit and you know you know most of the music I've listened to through my life is guitar-based blues and even jazz and rock. So I guess I'll be boring and go with guitar.
1: Okay. Um, now, these are questions that mo- m- most of our listeners, I've, I've kind of stopped asking some of these, but you'll fit with these. Is um, Are there any albums that you just, will, you will always want to listen to all the way through instead of just listening to them piecemeal? But if you're listening to a lot of vinyl, it may be just
0: all of them. No, it's not all of them. And um, there are specific albums. One is uh, The Clash uh, put out a triple album called Sandinista. And I have to listen to side one through side six in order.
1: And that's like, you know, it's it, a commitment.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're killing four hours practically. Yeah, so that's one. Um, a couple double albums from back in the day. I was a big Yes fan growing up, and they put out a double album called Tales from Topographic Oceans that was one song per side on a double album. So each song was like 25 minutes long. Wow! So I got to listen to that through uh, Genesis, another uh band I grew up listening to, and they put out a double album called Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It was their last one with Peter Gabriel. And that one I have to listen to side one through four. Okay. Are there more than four sides? No. No? Okay. Um,
1: I thought maybe, like, I guess there would have to be two increments of two. Um, uh, Best album of all time? Is there, like, a perfect can't do it? Can't. Um, uh, Is there an album that you're looking for for your store that would be, like, I really hope this comes in.
0: Yeah, gosh. Anything that uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp ha- had ever put out back in the day? Are you familiar with her? I'm not. Oh, she was an amazing uh, gospel musician who played electric guitar. Okay. She was fantastic. Is that her some- albums are like Grail albums. Like, I found one. I went on the Mississippi Blues tour a couple years ago, and I found one of her albums in a store in Memphis and probably paid 80 bucks for it, and that's... There's no album I won't sell, but if I really, really want a record, I'll just put a really high price on it just so nobody will buy it. Gotcha. So That way you
1: can just keep it, but
0: make a little money. That's right. So Sisters, uh, one of those.
1: Do you know uh,
0: the name Dick Spotswood? I know the name. He's associated with blues. Right? He,
1: yeah, he was a guest on this show. He lives oh, in Naples. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. He, uh, he, he still he, – he la- I'll try to make this as quick as possible because you should meet him. Like hmm. You guys should mm-hmm. like be in each other's presence. He started uh, a, a bluegrass, country bluegrass show on WAMU out of Washington, D.C. in 1965. Hmm. And he still produces it today from home and oh, wow. mails cds to them and then they play them huh. over the years his wikipedia page is you know three feet long he's found old music he's brought music to the world he's compiled anthologies he's like the guy wow. when it comes to country bluegrass yeah yeah yeah. and he lives in naples wow there's so.
0: another local guy uh george mitchell hmm. he's a photographer and he did he like uh Produced some blues albums, like back in the fifties and sixties, some of those old country blues albums. And it turns out he's just living in Fort Myers, still taking pictures. Hmm. And um, yeah, there's some amazing people in this area.
1: Yeah, well, they all come here for that sun. Oh yeah, that non snow winter. Um, okay, we're coming up toward the end here. You're so relieved, I can tell. That's right. <laughs> um, what would your fourteen year old self think of
0: Marty today in Fort Myers Beach? N- I think when I was fourteen, my two goals in life were to—believe um, it or not—to uh, be a DJ on the radio, and to work in a record store. So I accomplished one of my goals. So I think I'd be happy. And you want to
1: put your DJ voice on now? You can. No. You know, <laughs> I can't, can you turn the bass down? <laughs> I can't do that. So you'd be pretty happy as a—you know—you've—you've
0: owned a couple record stores over the years. Owned a couple record stores. I think being a—you know—my mom was a school teacher. And so at some point in my life, I realized that that's a great lifestyle. You know, you can work your butt off for a semester and then take a couple weeks and kick back a little bit and then work your butt off again and then summer comes. And so, yeah, I think I'm living a lifestyle my 14-year-old self would um, not be surprised about. Cool. Uh, can you recommend three people for this show? Uh, yeah, I figured you're going to ask this and I think what I'm going to do is, um, I mentioned one of the local bands, the Camaros. Okay. So it's a three piece band and each of them has kind of a unique story, music related story. And I don't think, well, I know they haven't done the show yet. So, um, Dougie Camaro, uh, is uh, Doug Davison. That he writes the songs and plays guitar and sings. Doug's been in and out of bands in Fort Myers for about 20 years, strip club bombs, pop pop. He's played with uh, Mark Davis and, you know, a lot of the local I've known people. him since sixth grade. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> we were in a math class together at Fort Myers Middle School. And I believe he used to work with, uh, or he used to live with John Davis, Uh uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so I'll recommend Doug. I'll recommend uh, the bass player, Ryan. He goes by Keita Camaro, Ryan Keita. Um, Ryan is the best chef in Fort Myers. He's owned a a couple versions of a restaurant called Yabo.
1: Okay, okay. And
0: everybody has great memories of Yabo. And uh, right now he's playing bass in a punk band, working out in a restaurant in Sanibel. Um, Yabo was one of those few venues for live local music through the years. So I think Ryan would have some great stories to tell. And the drummer is uh, Stevie Camaro, Steve Jenkins. And Steve... He's only been in Fort Myers a couple of years. I think he moved here in 2016. But he's played in punk bands in uh, Arizona and California and has a lot of great uh, punk rock stories to tell.
1: Okay. Well, uh, draw attention to this episode to them and then we'll reach out to them All too. All right. We'll um, do. Okay. Are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for some reason, especially if it has a negative memory association?
0: No. Well... um. Yes, anything by Twenty One Pilots. Oh, okay. I'll let my daughter know reason, that. <laughs> for some reason, that uh, grates on my nerves. Okay. Um, but real
1: quick, I mean, modern music, are you still listening to like stuff? I mean, you know who Twenty One Pilots is yeah, and that grates on your nerves. Yeah. Or is that just
0: exposure from your sons? Or? Not deliberately. I mean, you have to keep up, you know, in a record store, people come in and ask for stuff. But honestly, I don't keep up with new stuff as much as I should. <clears throat>
1: okay. Well, uh, any final thoughts?
0: No, um, you are really good at this. Oh, well,
1: thank you very much. You're really good at this, too.
0: <laughs> thank you. No, thank you, Mike.
1: We make this show in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and sometimes host. Chris Duffis is executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode 55 with maestro Nir Cabaretti, who's best known in our part of the world as the music director of the Southwest Florida Symphony, but he's better known around the world as the music director of the Santa Barbara Symphony, which he's led since 2006. His first song story revealed the fact that had he not come across the film Fame when it came out when he was about 14, he would not be living the life he is today. He was attending a normal high school, following his parents' wishes, pursuing an education that would lead him toward being a doctor or a lawyer.
2: And then this film came out, and, uh, and all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, there is a school where kids with talents can get together, and then you share things, and it's, it's such an enriching environment, and, uh, and by coincidence, uh, uh, one person I knew well said, so well, what do you know? There is this art school in Israel, which in that time had only one school, uh, why don't you try to audition? And I've seen the the film, as said, and I said, oh, oh my gosh, I would love to get into a school where people uh, have the same approach to art, mm-hmm. that have a lot of interest together. Which was really tough going to a normal. And I did one year in a normal, I would say, normal high school. Yeah, yeah. It was tough for me to kind of get to, you know, along with kids that couldn't care less about music. So uh, I made the audition and uh, luckily I won a place in this classroom. So all of a sudden I go to school and I have actors and painters and musicians, but more than anything else, what this school gave me is the opportunity to be together with people like me. And all of a sudden I see one person is playing the trumpet and he's playing in a youth symphony. And I said, would you like to come to a concert? I went to a concert. One of our colleagues played a harp and uh, she had a concert and I went to see her playing with, uh, as a solo. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm trying to go to, I'm starting to go to classical concert and I'm going to plays and I'm seeing exhibitions that my friends were part of. Were you
1: just like, these are my people? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Keep listening. Next time on
0: Three Song Stories.
1: I I couldn't even think B-flat that early in the morning. So he kept playing, and I sang, and I sang the B-flat that morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. Tenors, I promise you, don't even spit before noon. And I sang it and got out of there and thought, oh, my God, destroy that tape. That's horrible. And he cornered me a little bit later and said, who are you?